This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. When you think about CD entertainment, the kind of thing that might lead you down the wrong path in life, poison your mind, or maybe even drive you to violence, you might think of excessive drinking or drug use, or maybe of the video game Grand Theft Auto, if you're of that mind. But chances are, you're unlikely to think about comic books. Today, comic books are a huge part of mainstream culture. We regularly dress up as Superman and Wonder Woman at Halloween. And Heath Ledger, just the other day, won an Academy Award for his portrayal of the Joker in one of the many film interpretations of the Batman comics. Even comics that don't feature bigger-than-life superheroes are getting respect now. Graphic novels like Art Spiegelman's Mouse and Marjorie Satrapi's Persepolis are taken seriously as literature. And illustrations by comic book artists like the Hernandez Brothers and Daniel Close grace the covers of publications like The New Yorker on a regular basis. But comics have, in the past, not been seen in such a positive light as they are today. In fact, almost as soon as comic strips began to be published in newspapers, they were the subject of controversy, mostly, although not exclusively, because critics saw them as leading young people down the wrong path, the path to juvenile delinquency. Parents, do you actually know what your sons and daughters do for thrills and kicks? Teenage kids living it up and doing things they can never live down. Teenage sickle hounds going all out for thrills. Laughing at danger. Playing at love. The kind of playing that leads to plenty trouble. But Carol falls for the wrong boy. A petty thief who promises to reform but doesn't. The Flaming Teenage. A story that will take you from hell to eternity. The true, unvarnished confession of a juvenile delinquent. Strong young men. Fighting with all the fierce passions of grown men. The flaming teenage. Filled with the intensity of white heat. Together in two movie theater treats. Hot Rod Gang and High School Hellcat. The naked, searing truth. The flaming teenage. Those clips might seem laughably dramatic today. But at one point, not that long ago... Juvenile delinquency was a major concern, and comic books were thought to be a major contributing factor to said delinquency. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about comics, controversy, and subversion. First, we'll talk with author David Haydu. Haydu is the author of books on composer Billy Strayhorn and on the 1960s New York folk music scene. His latest book, The Ten Cent Plague, tells the story of the panic that surrounded comic books in the 40s and 50s. It's just out in paperback from Picador. Later on the show, we'll talk with Fulbright scholar Jonathan Hogan. Hogan's about to head off to Brazil, where he'll look at how artists there used horror comics to question the country's dictatorship in the 1960s and 70s. First, though, I visited David Haydu in his office at Columbia University, where he's a professor of journalism. After he gave me a tour of his mementos from past work, thousands of comics, and among other photos, a picture of his son dressed as The Flash— we settled in for a chat about the history of comics and what Haydu calls the great comic book scare. David Haydu, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for having me. This has been fun so far. So how did you come to write about comic books? I was a comic fan when I was young. In fact, uh, the first work that I ever had published was were illustrations in the cartoon vein for my local newspaper, I loved comics. I cared about comics. I always had in mind to do something about comics someday, but I didn't realize that there was 
a full book in the subject until I, I was in, in the midst of the research for my second book. I was researching Positively Fourth Street, which was about the 60s. And some people started to talk about comics as playing a role in that to me. And then I thought, well, gee, maybe there's something to this. So let's start from the beginning. What was the original purpose of comics? Comics, comic books were made originally by young people for other young people without a lot of oversight. Nobody was really paying much attention to what was going on in those pages for a while. So there were young people, including quite a few members of ethnic minorities, racial minorities, or people who felt that they were outsiders of one kind or another, kind of social misfits, outcasts, and people who felt like they either wouldn't be welcome in advertising or in doing illustration or kind of mainstream publishing uh, because of their background or their ethnicity or their race or because of their sensibility or the, the kind of work that they did, the kind of work that they wanted to do. Kind of, and they felt welcome in comics. So comic, the early comic books attracted outcasts and misfits of all kinds. And you could see that on the, on the pages. There's this freewheeling kind of anything goes loopy quality to comics. And you see what's going on in comics and it's, the closest parallel to me is watching my son in the playground where you could see this this miracle of invention going on. Now, you know, oh, we're in space and the next minute, oh, no, 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 okay, now we're in the ocean and there's there's a tsunami and then, oh, and then, but now I turn, I'm a fish now. <laughs> so I turn into a fish and this kind of freedom and this freewheeling imagination that we think of as uh, being unique to childhood was also unique to comic books. Let's let's go back to the very, very beginning, though. How did comic strips even begin to exist, even before there were comic books? Comic strips flourished in the early days of the Sunday supplements of the major metropolitan newspapers, which were full-color supplements that were geared to the immigrant working classes, and many of the members of those classes were... Not, I don't want to say illiterate, but weren't English-speaking uh, and couldn't read or write English. It's not that they couldn't read or write. It's not that they were illiterate, but the, uh, they weren't fluent in English. So the early comic strips, The Yellow Kid, The Cats and Jammer Kids, The Happy Hooligan, and a number of the other strips evoked the immigrant experience and the immigrant sensibility. And there were caricatures of young Germans and young Italians and kind of loving caricatures and a lot of cynicism toward authority figures of all kinds who are usually the schoolmaster or the local cop on the beat who were always the buffoons and the object of ridicule by the heroes who were these rabble-rousing kind of little tykes and hoodlums. So there's... A kind of cynicism toward the culture at large, coded in these stories of kids in their roughhouse antics in the alleys of New York City. And that comic strips then started to mature and change as the readership broadened, and comic strips lost a lot of that unruly quality. By the mid 30s, when the first comic books were introduced, 
comic strips had a different function in in the culture. Comic strip artists were famous people and, and had a kind of legi- were held in esteem in the culture. And to be to be a comic strip artist like like Milton Kniff or Harold Gray it was to be a celebrity, you know, a well known and revered figure in the culture. And comic books took over the role that comic strips had in the culture and were an outlet for kind of cynicism toward authority and, and, and kind of unruliness and freedom in the way that it took on the role that comic strips used to have. Early comic books and actually early comic strips as well were, they were sort of gritty and dirty and uh, stereotypically immigranty. They took place in neighborhoods, in cities where a lot of the readers in the U.S. wouldn't have been. But unlike a lot of the other media at the time that had sort of the gutter as its setting, it wasn't intended to be instructive about the gutter, mm-hmm. like something like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle or The right. Grapes of Wrath. What's the difference? Yeah, comic strips weren't social realism. They weren't intended to glamorize street life or the immigrant experience. They kind of reveled in the roughness of that experience. They represented a kind of sharing of the hardships of that experience and took a kind of delight in that sharing with the readers. So they had a communal function. They were their way of, of expressing and parroting the immigrant experience by and for you know, for the immigrant cl- class in the early part of the century. And comic books had a similar function in that they were done by kids uh, for kids, and they had, they had a shared purpose of expressing what it was like to be a kid, which was to be a, a different kind of outsider in American culture in the 30s, 40s, and the early 50s, because this was at a time when uh, youth wasn't central to popular culture the way that it is now. Young people in the 30s and 40s, when comics came out, grew grew up feeling like they wouldn't belong to the culture until they became adults. Comic books represented something very different for them. Comic, comic books were were a way for them to belong to a kind of a vast club that was restricted to, a, but restricted by age. It was, the comic books were for and by young people. Right away, as soon as they appear, comics are like surprisingly controversial. It didn't take long for the critics to come out. <laughs> comics, the first comics were published in the mid-1930s. By 1940, comics already had a fierce and vocal critic in the name of Sterling North. His criticism of comics is that, is that they're lurid, they're violent, they're salacious. And uh, this criticism of comics caught on very quickly and built and built and built. Within a few years, um, a Jesuit priest by the name of Robert E. Southard uh, took up the comic book crusade and published a pretty extensively about what he saw as a causal relationship between comics and juvenile delinquencies. In 1944-1945, this priest is claiming that comic books have or a, a major cause, that's the exact phrase he used, of juvenile delinquency. And parochial schools first, and then later lay schools, uh, started burning comic books as early as 1945, November 1945. No, 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 no. 
On WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, you're listening to Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're talking about comic books, controversy, and politics. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Fulbright scholar Jonathan Hogan about his plans to study Brazilian horror comics as social criticism. First, though, let's hear the rest of my conversation with David Haydu. I asked Haydu to tell me about the origins of the panic that rocked the comic book industry in the 40s and 50s. Comics were very much in sync with the youth culture of the, of the mid-40s. Look at what was going on with, with young people in the 40s. and Look at what, what was going on with comics. Young people were changing. And comic books were changing. Comics changed in part to reflect the changing sensibility of young people, but it also they also stimulated and advanced and accelerated that change in young people. Kids started to act more defiantly in the mid-40s, and they started to dress and talk and engage socially in ways that defied their parents and defied the status quo. And a lot of this behavior at the time was pathologized as juvenile delinquency. And comic books both reflected and advanced that same kind of kind of cynicism toward authority, kind of absorption with bad behavior, absorption with violence, absorption with sex. And uh, they got darker, more graphic, more lurid, more popular among these people who were interested in these things at the time. And there was nothing in the culture, certainly nothing for young people in the culture that was so graphic, so violent, so lurid. And as you can imagine, this did not sit well with parents or with the protectors of moral values, uh, PTAs, church groups. Comics became a fulcrum for debate and early battle of the culture wars and uh, full-blown hysteria, you know, uh, emerged. Sort of in the, in I guess, the late 40s and early 50s, there starts to be a real switch in emphasis in comics from sort of superness and adventures mm-hmm. to crime, like really noirish stuff. This really rubbed people the wrong way, right? Yeah, absolutely. We find in the late 40s now stories about valor and crime fighting receding in popularity and being displaced, replaced by stories, for the most part, about crime doing, (laughs) doing of crimes. For many reasons. The chief reason is that comic book readers were growing up. If you're 10 in 1938 and reading the first Superman stories, 1948, you're, you're 20. Comic books grew along with their audience. The subject matter of comic books changed and comics darkened. There were pulp stories about detectives, crime, horror stories, romance stories. And a lot of those romance stories were a lot spicier and racier than you'd think or that we would tend to think in our collective memory of, you know, those Lichtenstein paintings with the tear dripping, uh, you know, down down the cheek. Many of those, of the early romance stories uh, were about kind of free-thinking women who defied their parents and kind of took off with boys for the weekend. And many of these stories kind of either emboldened young women or re- reflected a new kind of uh, boldness on the, on, the, on the part of young women and were criticized almost as fiercely as crime and horror comics were. There was legislation 
that restricted or the sale of comics or outlawed the sale of some comics. And much of that legislation specified the kind of comics that would could not be sold to minors or could not be sold at all or could not be purchased. And romance comics were specified in many of those cases. And by – well, we're talking in early 2009. By 1949, 60 years ago, this month, there were over 50 pieces of legislation on the books in cities and states around the country. Let's talk about context. What else was going on in the moment when all of this comics-related controversy erupts? There's some big stuff happening, right? It's important to contextualize the hysteria over comics. Uh, we ha- we have parents, uh, church groups, legislators who are in an uproar over comics because they saw comic books as a threat to the, the well-being of the populace, <laughs> young people in particular, but not only young people. They thought of comics as a threat to public health and public safety. <laughs> They thought, oh, comics can corrupt youth, lead youth to commit crimes. Therefore, kids aren't safe and the communities in which kids live aren't safe because they're being corrupted by comic books. Now, this kind of fear of uh, an insidious force kind of entering uh, the country and infecting the minds of Americans in a way that could undermine our values was not unique to comics. It was very much in the air at the time. This is the era of the Red Scare, the era of uh, McCarthyism, and the era even of the fear of flying saucers. You know, all sorts of uh, the, the idea that uh, America, right after World War II, uh, was now endangered and was open to the outside influences and that those influences would could infect us had a lot of currency in those days. But there's a big difference between what went on with comic books in, in, in this way and that the Red Scare was a fear of a threat from without. The communism would come and corrupt America. Uh, that's the Red Scare. The fear that comic books books tapped was one that the threat would come from within, that it would come from our own, that, it would, that kids, our own children, that would represent a challenge to everything that adults held dear. It's a really deep-rooted fear. I mean, I have a couple of kids myself, and the realization that kids are here to replace us. <laughs> is a pretty devastating thing. And the realization that they will probably replace not just us, but replace our values, our social values, our even our aesthetic values can be pretty, pretty devastating. And that was a big part of what was going on in the comic book hysteria. It was a battle between two generations, one generation that was protective of its power, but also its values. And another generation, a rising generation that was now taking on, that was now coming into power, mainly through its economic power, uh, but had a different set of values. And the comic books represented those values. Comics are obviously the focus of a huge amount of attention in the 40s and 50s, but they actually end up being a major subject of inquiry in Senate hearings on juvenile delinquency in the early 50s. Tell me what that was all about, and then tell me what the result of that was. Hmm. Well, legislators 
on the municipal and the state level had been acting to do something about comics since the mid forties. And really the, the, by 1948, there were already dozens of acts of legislation against comics. Um, and these acts multiplied. And by the early 1950s, there were over a hundred pieces of legislation on the books all around the country, restricting the sale of comics or outlawing comics. They didn't seem to be doing much. Uh, comics flourished. They grew more lurid and uh, more graphic and uh, pulpier. Uh, and finally, Congress decided that something had to be done uh, and held a series of, not just one set of, but a series of, of hearings on comics and juvenile delinquency. They were absolutely devastating to, to comic books. They were nationally televised in 1954 at a time when television had just reached over 50% of American homes. So now to be nationally televised was really significant. And these hearings mirrored a set of hearings that had taken place just a couple of years earlier in the same courthouse with some of the same players on the subject of organized crime, uh, the famous Kefauver crime hearings. The two sets of hearings had an accumulative effect, and comic books could have dominated the public discourse in 1954 were uh, front page of newspapers all around the country, front page of, page of magazines, the subject of literally hundreds of articles and editorials. And uh, after these hearings, uh, there was a feeling that something had to be done. Uh, some legislation was passed in New York State that nearly ran the comic book in- industry out of, uh, to the ground. And the comic book business nearly collapsed by the mid-1950s, most of the independent comic publishers were out of business. There were only a fraction of the number of titles published, and even more significantly than that, all the comics that published had to be subjected to uh, the Comics Code Authority, which was a self-regulating mechanism that comic book publishers put together and enforced as a way of preventing government action. And it actually turned out to be more restrictive and more severe than any uh, government regulation that to, to preceded it or to follow it. And it denied comic books their essence <laughs> as a vehicle of expression of uh, dissident ideas. Uh, and comic books were gelded and became... Only comics you'd find for some time after that were wholesome, valorous comics or you know, funny animal comics. And the comics didn't really recover until the late 1970s when the underground movement came up. And they never, ever again became the most popular form of entertainment in the country. David Haydu is the author of The Tencent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America, which is out just now in paperback from Picador. David, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks a lot. I had fun. Superman never made any money for saving the world from Sodom and Grundy. And sometimes I despair the world will never see another man like him. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. 
As we heard from David Heydu, for most of their modern history, comics have been seen as being either just devoid of value or being actually harmful. In recent decades, though, they have come to be seen not only as legitimate creative endeavors, but also as a legitimate source of information about different cultures. John Hogan's betting that will be the case. Hogan graduated from Fordham last spring, and in a few days he's off to Brazil on a Fulbright Fellowship to study comics as an expression of resistance to that country's dictatorship in the 60s and 70s. Hogan joined me in the studio to chat about his upcoming trip. I began our conversation by asking him the same thing I asked David Haydu. Why comics? I feel like comics are a particularly good lens for understanding a culture, mainly because they appeal to so many, to such a large audience. With visuals, it appeals to the illiterate as well as people who can read. With the uh, with the text, it can appeal to a larger amount of people who can read. But with the visuals in general, you don't even need to be able to read the language that the comic is in. And I feel like that's why comics are a particularly representative media because they focus on such a large group of people. When I think of comics, I think of sort of a, a pretty selected group of people reading them, mostly like kids, young men, mm-hmm. uh, some young women, but basically not everyone. Is that true in Brazil? In the era that I'm researching, it's definitely, definitely not true. Um, out of that era, actually, a lot of overtly political comics have come out that were gauged towards an adult audience, um, Upashkim being one. That was a, a comic that took on the government, took on um, the dictatorship, we actually overtly raised questions about the dictatorship itself. And that was geared more towards an adult audience. What is Upashkim? Not quite familiar with it. All I know is the title at this point. <laughs> um, that, that, actually, that's, that's a good deal of the problem. The reason why I'm going to be down there in Brazil, um, it's very hard to get a hold of Brazilian comics in the U.S. So all I have are a handful of titles, and beyond that, not really the material, the plot, anything like that. You focus, or you're going to focus on a form of comics that doesn't usually get a real lot of respect from the academic world, which is horror comics. Mm -hmm. Why is that, and why do you think they're an especially good way to look at stuff? Hmm. Uh, I would think they don't get, first of all, much respect just because, in general, the horror genre in any kind of medium, in film in particular, is usually seen as kind of a trash genre. And in a genre that's kind of looked down upon, such as comic books, the, the fact that they're horror comic books just amplifies the, uh, you know, the uh, disdain that people have for it. Since it's a it's a lowbrow medium, since it's lowbrow entertainment, people let their guard down, kind of, and allow themselves, their own beliefs, their own values, to spill out onto the printed page. And I believe that since comic books are marginalized, and horror comics in particular, we can find even more, even more aspects that are exemplary of the culture on the page. So if you're mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore, you're probably not going to say that in something that you'll publish in a newspaper, but you might say it in a comic book where no one's going to notice it. Yes, exactly. It goes under the radar almost. So why Brazil? Give me a little history. Brazil in particular in the, uh, in the 60s to, the, to 1984, I believe, the, the mid-80s, um, was under a military dictatorship. And uh, they heavily censored, heavily censored um, any kind of opposition to the dictatorship uh, on the government level. They, uh, they instituted institutional acts, they were called, um, and I think the fifth one restricted any kind of free speech in the media, in popular entertainment. Um, so it was very difficult to criticize the government overtly. A lot of people weren't really trying to criticize the government. They were just looking for some means of catharsis, almost. They wanted some means to strike out an oppressive government without overtly doing it and drawing heat upon themselves. A lot of people see horror comics of that time in Brazil, the 60s and 70s, as 
by reading about violent acts, by reading about people lashing out, things like that, by reading about things out of the ordinary happening, it was almost a catharsis for their day-to-day world. It was something that kind of gave them an escape. So what kind of stuff is happening in these comics? Do you know yet? Uh, I haven't really gotten access to them yet. Um, I'll only benchmark I have to compare them to is American Horror Comics of the 1950s. Um, this is another aspect I kind of wanted to work into my studies. Uh, in the early 1950s, there were trials in the, uh, in the Senate about juvenile delinquency, and comics were focused upon heavily, the horror comics industry in particular, because it was one of the most uh, profitable genres in comics. And throughout uh, the trials, more or less, the uh, uh, viability of the horror comic genre was just destroyed. So one thing that interests me about Brazil's horror comics is that while American horror comics were dead, the uh, Brazilian horror comics were thriving. So what, what I want to ask myself is what about the media environments, the culture of the time, made one thrive while the other petered away into uh, obsolescence? So what are you going to spend most of your time doing, like hanging around comic book shops? or A good deal of this is just going to be, like as I said, me getting my hands on the materials because there's no way I could have gotten them in the uh, New York in particular and the U.S. in general. So the first half of my time there is probably going to be getting my hands on the materials. The rest of it is um, doing interviews with creators of the time, with modern creators, and just trying to piece together that with the actual material itself into my studies. John Hogan is a Fulbright scholar and fanboy who's about to go off to Brazil to study comic books. John, thanks so much. Thank you very much. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. You can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives, both at WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.